Today I'm continuing a series about discipleship. I started this talking about the need for discipleship. I was trying to contrast it with the way that evangelism has been done in the body of Christ instead of discipleship. And let me just again say that I know that this title and talking about this doesn't ring a bell with most people and there is a tendency to dismiss this as not being for you or something that is urgent or that you want to listen to. But I believe that this is essential. This could turn out to be one of the most important things I've ever ministered. The Lord told us to go and make disciples. And that's what I've been talking about. Let me just uh, read a few passages. And this is going to be just to prove a point. I've made this point that the Lord called us to make disciples. And Jesus spent twice as much time teaching as he did preaching. And let me just use a few verses to establish this. This is not the way that I typically teach. I usually just take a one verse and just expound on it. But I just kind of want to overwhelm you with this is not an um, isolated thing or, or a fringe truth that I'm trying to make a major thing of. I just want to show you some scriptures here about how that this is exactly what Jesus did. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and again, I'm just using a portion of this verse to make this point. It says, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. He, it emphasizes that Jesus was a teacher. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding His disciples, He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now again, let me just make it clear that Jesus did teach, I mean preach. He proclaimed things, but he spent twice as much time explaining, teaching, as he did just proclaiming things. In Matthew chapter 26, or 21, verse 23, he came unto him, at they, these uh, Pharisees came unto him as he was teaching. Here again is an instance where he was teaching and they interrupted him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 55, when they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and none of you came out and arrested me. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, he went round about the villages teaching. Luke chapter 5, verse 17, he came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching. Luke chapter 13, verse 10, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. In verse 22, that same chapter, Luke 13, 22, and he went through the cities and villages teaching. Luke chapter 21, 37, in the daytime he was teaching in the temple. Luke 23, 5, he stirred up the people teaching throughout all Jewry. Jewry. And then uh, in John chapter 6, this is the instance about Jesus feeding the multitude and the multiplication of the food didn't just take place in his hands, but it took place in the hands of the disciples. And I use this to illustrate how that through discipleship is the only way we're ever going to meet the needs of people. We can't depend upon one person to do everything. We have to train others who can go out and multiply our efforts. You know, here's another passage of Scripture I want to bring out in John chapter 2. This is the very first instance that Jesus was in Jerusalem after his baptism by John and anointing by the Holy Spirit. And in Jerusalem, he did all of these miracles. And in John chapter 2, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. 
But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Boy, this is dramatic. Again, most people just kind of skip over these verses and don't think about it. But, but think about this. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to draw all men unto himself is what he said. So Jesus had a desire to reach people. And yet here's his very first appearance in Jerusalem after he had announced himself as being the Messiah. People saw the miracles that he did and it says multitudes believed on him. Now let me ask you that if, say, an evangelist today went to a city and was able to do the miracles like Jesus did and because of it multitudes believed, what do you think that the typical evangelist today would do? I guarantee you they would capitalize on that to the max. They would rent the largest auditorium. They would get these people signed up. They would print tracts. They would blitz the city. They would use this for leverage and they would just do all of these things. Jesus did just the opposite. He wouldn't commit himself to them. He wouldn't entrust his ministry to these people. You know why? Because they weren't disciples. They were people that were excited. They had come to believe but you know what? Nobody starts off as a mature believer. It takes time to grow. This same thing is reflected in what Paul told Timothy to do over in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when he was giving the qualifications of an elder. And he said that he had to be a person that kept his family in order and that was above reproach and all of these things. And it also says not a novice. A word novice means a person that is newly come to the faith. It goes on to say there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, don't put a novice in a, a position of authority. It says, lest he be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's not because God doesn't like novices. It's because he loves you and he doesn't want to put responsibility and weight and pressure on you until you're able to bear it. And so there it needs to be a growth process. The people in leadership in the body of Christ should be mature people who have grown. And I guarantee you, you can learn all kinds of things, but until you put it to the test and you go through some hardship and some opposition, uh, you don't have the same level of maturity as just a person who's had some book knowledge and doesn't, hadn't ever put it into practice. And so there needs to be this maturity, and that's what discipleship is all about. And yet as a whole, the body of Christ has missed this. The average church, I guarantee you, if you are a warm body, if you're breathing, if you still have uh, the right temperature and you're willing to work, most churches will put you into a position of leadership and use you. And you aren't a disciple. That's, this is not what Jesus did. So anyway, I'm using all of these scriptures to show that Jesus taught more than he uh, proclaimed. And then the disciples did the same thing. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, "...they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers." Now this shows that there was fellowship, there was eating together, there was meals and things like this. They prayed, but the very first thing that was listed was they continued in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles didn't just lead them into conversion. They weren't just converted, saved, and then they came together and met and had uh, fellowship. No, they continued in doctrine. 
We need doctrine. We need to have truths. And I tell you, this is one of those doctrines is that God told us to make disciples and not to make converts. And we have just ignored that doctrine and we've substituted our own traditions for whatever the reasons are. There's probably multiple reasons. But this is a doctrine in the body of Christ that's wrong today. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says, "...and daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ." Here again, I'm not saying that teaching is all we do. There is a place for fellowship. There is a place for uh, just proclaiming something and standing up and, stand and, and proclaiming all of the things that God stands for. But you've got to explain to people how they can walk in that. And they taught and preached Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, For this cause I have sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So here's the Apostle Paul, the man that wrote half of the New Testament, saying that he taught everywhere in every church. Teaching was a huge part of the Apostle Paul's ministry. As a matter of fact, you know, the way that he did evangelism, he would travel and instead of holding a crusade and then getting some people born again and moving to the next place, he would go to a place and stay there as long as he could. And once the people made Jesus their Lord, he would teach them. And this was his... Uh, you know, method of uh, evangelizing, he would go and he would proclaim Jesus. The Lord would touch people's hearts, but he would disciple them. And he would stay there for years and disciple them. And then they would go out. As a matter of fact, if you read in the book of uh, Revelation, you know, the church, uh, the letters that were written to the seven churches of Asia. Did you know Paul didn't go to all of those churches? The book of Colossians is written to people that he said in chapter 2, you have never seen my face. But it is supposed he had written this book to a man who came to Ephesus where he stayed for three and a half years teaching. This man got converted. This man got discipled. And he went to Colossae. And he's the one that evangelized these people and got them started. Every one of these seven churches of Asia, with the exception of the church at Ephesus, Paul was there. The others, Paul didn't go to them. Paul instead trained people and people went out and started all of these churches. Ephesus was like the commercial hub. It was like a capital or the county seat of an area. And what he did was go in there and train the people. And then the people, they were disciples. They went out and did the work. That's the reason that Paul made the impact that he did is because Paul taught people everywhere in every church. He made disciples. He didn't just make converts. Let me just use this one passage of Scripture. This looks like it's counterproductive to the point that I'm making. But in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts is where Philip went down and met the Ethiopian eunuch. And this Ethiopian eunuch was coming down from Jerusalem, he was a convert, convert to Judaism and he was reading the scriptures and he just happened to be reading in Isaiah chapter 53 about the Messiah, about being led as a sheep before his shears dumb. He didn't open his mouth. And he, and he was uh, reading these scriptures and the Lord told Philip to go join himself to this man and he, 
he ran up beside the chariot and said, what are you reading? And he told him and he says, how can I? He says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? So this eunuch invited Philip to come up into his chariot. And as he rode along, Philip began to preach through these scriptures, Jesus to him. And this man said, you know, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And so he stopped. They went down. He baptized him in water. And then it says in Acts 8, 39, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. The reason I bring this up is to say that, you know, in this instance, Philip didn't disciple this Ethiopian eunuch. And there may be some people that as I've been emphasizing and trying to put the emphasis on discipleship, there may be some people that bring up an instance like this or the thief that was hanging on the cross that just defended Jesus when the other thief was criticizing him and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise and yet he didn't have time to be discipled. And people say, see, you, they, these people were saved without being discipled. Yes, there are instances like that, but this is the exception rather than the rule. And this is not consistent with what the Lord told us to do when he gave us a command to go make disciples and teach them to observe all things. In the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul called a um, minister's conference. He had ministered in Ephesus for three and a half years. And then he had gone on and ministered somewhere else. And as he was coming back, he didn't go all the way back to the city of Ephesus, but he had all of the pastors. Uh, some people believe that there was as many as 50,000 to 100,000 Christians in Ephesus. It was a hub of Asia at that time. And uh, Timothy was the, was the head bishop or elder over that area, but they didn't have a church building as such. They meant in homes. And so if you take 50,000 people and divide them into smaller groups and homes, even if you could cram 100 people into a home, which I really don't think in that day and age they had the ability to accommodate that in most homes. Uh, you know, today we live at a much... Uh, more spacious dwellings than what they did. So anyway, even if you say there was a hundred and if there was 50,000, then you divide that and that's still, I think, 500 pastors or people that he called together. I'm not sure the exact number, but there was a large number. And anyway, he said this in Acts 20:31 as he was talking to them. He says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Here again is Paul's method of evangelism. Paul didn't just go into a city and preach the gospel. Now there are instances where he preached the gospel and he was stoned and left for dead and he had to leave or he was run out. He was brought into the Colosseum and they uh, beat him and forced him to leave the town. And there's some instances where he did preach and then leave. But I mean his normal method of ministering to people was to go into a place, start preaching the gospel. As people received, he would disciple them. Paul was into making disciples and not just making converts. Well, that is a powerful truth. And this ought to be what the church is doing. And again, you know, I've got a lot of friends who are pastors. I am not against pastors. I am for the local church. But I'm saying that there's a large number of churches that call themselves Christian that aren't even remotely 
doing what God called them to do. They preach a social gospel. There are entire denominations that are licensing homosexuals and they have just flip-flopped and they aren't representing God correctly. But even among those who are truly born again, people who love God and are trying to serve God, there are very few churches that put the emphasis on discipleship. Did you know that the average spirit-filled, charismatic church, whatever terminology you want to give today, I'd say that the average church meets one hour a week, maybe an hour and a half or something per week. Most churches do not meet on Sunday night. Most churches don't have a midweek service. Most churches have eliminated what's called Sunday school, and instead they've opted for a message where the message may be good and it may be encouraging, but it is not systematic. It's not making disciples. It's just little individual truths here and there, and whether or not the person can reach up and grab those things and connect the dots and make the pieces fit together, Man, it takes a tremendous amount of effort on their part. And just by virtue of the fact that it's only one hour a week or maybe two hours a week maximum, you aren't going to get a tremendous amount of discipleship done. It's going to take more than that for you to be a disciple. You know, again, I'm not going to mention names, but this man who pastors a mega church in one of our large cities about 15 or 20 years ago, started the seeker-friendly church to where we get rid of all of the details of Christianity, anything that could ever be offensive, any statement about your political views, any statement about social, moral views, get rid of all of that stuff. Uh, he shortened his church service down to where it was just like a performance, maybe 15 minutes of singing with lights and, you know, all of the things that are entertaining that would compete with secular uh, concert. Uh, changed his message down to where it's just 10 or 15 minutes, just making a point and just highlighting something. And the logic behind all of this was that you use these things to just entice people. In a sense, you use the same things that they're used to in the world. You bring it into the church and you use that to entice them and draw them in. And then once you get them in, then there was these small groups and there were other programs that they had where he was going to try and disciple them. He may not have used that terminology, but he was going to try and make the impact on their life in these other ways. And anyway, after 15 or 20 years, this man came out just a couple of years ago and basically he was the poster boy. He's the one that started this. He's the one that popularized it. And I mean hundreds and hundreds of church have, churches have adopted this uh, user-seeker-friendly type of church atmosphere. And this man who is the leader of this, who started it, stood up a couple of years ago and says he failed. It didn't work. He now has tens of thousands of people coming to his church, but he says they aren't Christians. They aren't, well, for sure, they aren't disciples. Some of them may be truly born again, but even he admitted that there's a tremendous amount of the people that go to his church that aren't born again. You know, I go to a large church of over 10,000 people, and I actually talked to the pastor and said, if you were to give me your church and let me preach in it for a month, I could whittle that number from 10,000 down to 1,000 in a month's time. And I said, if you gave it to me for two or three months, I could have it down to maybe five or 600. That's probably how many people you have that are really committed to God and wanting to go on and serve God. And the others are just kind of playing religion. 
And this pastor, I mean, he's a great man. I love him. He's, he, we have good fellowship, and I've, I'm enjoying his teaching, and he's trying to change the situation. But he, out of his own mouth, admitted, he said, oh, yeah, a spirit, it's called a spirit-filled church, a full gospel church, whatever. He admitted that, well, over 60%, maybe 70% of the people that go to his church don't even have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is baby stuff, just foundational stuff for getting started in the Lord. He admitted that the vast majority of them were not committed to the Lord. And I mean, he is systematically teaching and trying to do some things about it. So I'm not saying any of these things to condemn. I'm just saying that, you know what, these larger churches... The vast majority, and I can't say this because I don't know every church, but the vast majority of these large, larger churches have these high numbers of people coming because they have dumbed down the gospel. They have watered it down so that there basically is no commitment. There is nothing asked of the person. They come there and for 45 minutes or an hour a week, they get their conscience soothed and they go on and there is no demand upon them. In many of these churches, they don't give invitations. There is never anything asked of them, no commitments made. This is not true church. And you know what? We have large numbers of people going to some of these things, but they aren't impacting and changing their community because they aren't disciples. Man, I'm saying some things here that are radical. And I, you know, I don't know exactly where all of this is going to lead us. If a person was just to totally embrace everything I'm teaching here and start trying to implement it, you know what? It might cause problems because it does not fit the religious model that is in place today. There's just a few churches that I know where the pastor literally is trying to disciple the people and pouring himself in and systematically teaching them and going to the effort. That's not even the goal of most churches. And so this doesn't fit with our religious model that we have today, and I, that's going to cause problems. Let me, hear, let me say this. Somebody may not understand this at first, but listen to what I'm saying. But did you know that our Bible college, that we have Karis Bible College, we have not only the one here in Colorado Springs, but we have uh, schools all over the United States in foreign countries and different things. Did you know that this Bible college wouldn't exist if the church was doing what God commanded us to do, to make disciples, if every church was making disciples instead of making converts, and then just a place for the, the converts to assemble and to give their money and to build uh, buildings and things like this, if the church instead of that was discipling people, and I mean people were maturing in the Lord, there wouldn't be any need for a Bible school. This Bible college that I have, all of the Bible colleges that we have, are basically a response to the body of Christ not doing what God told us to do. And you know, we have this year over 500 people here at our local thing. We have over 1,000 through these other things. And then our correspondence and online, we have thousands of people that are having to look to me and come and get our materials and receive these things, that if the church had the emphasis on discipleship, did you know none of this would be necessary? Because the church, on a local level, you could be discipled better than you can be discipled through a Bible college. I hate to say that, but it's absolutely true. 
And most churches just have advocated this responsibility to disciple people. It's not even on the radar. It's not even a desire. And even the people who, the pastors who pray about their people and want them to change, they really don't have the things in place for them to change. They don't have any way for them to sit down and systematically study the Scriptures. They don't have materials together. You know, there was a time, it's been 15 now or 20 years ago, I think, that I sat down with Don Crow and we developed this very first discipleship thing. And the purpose was that Don was leading lots of people to the Lord. Don was just out on the streets and leading people to the Lord. And he was trying to have Bible studies with them, but, you know, it was hard and there was nothing in place. And so we talked about it and we developed this that basically just covers 48 key things that every Christian has to deal with. And we just put it in little simple format and we started teaching this. And now this has grown. There has literally been millions of people now that have gone through this discipleship program. And we've started putting all of my materials into things so that if a person has a need in their life, they could come and they could say, man, I need teaching on finances. I'm a wreck. Can you help me? Could you? They wouldn't use these words, but can you disciple me? And we just have things that we can give people that will help them. Again, all of this is basically a result of the church not doing this. You know, I don't find any pleasure in saying that. I am not against the church. I got lots of friends that are pastors and they're doing a good job. But even my friends who are pastors, really, it's, it's just a drop in the bucket. The church isn't having as much input and influence on the average church member as the world does. We've got to change that. It's not just a matter of quality time or quality ministry. There's got to be quantity ministry. It takes time to make disciples. And you know, there's, I'd say that the average person who goes to church feels like an hour a week is plenty. If they ask for two hours or three hours, most people would just say, this is, this is more than I'm willing to give. And it has, we have developed a culture that just is not conducive to discipleship. So by me teaching on these things and saying that this is what God called us to do and this is the job of the church and if the church isn't making disciples, if all they're doing is making converts, then they aren't doing what Jesus told them to do. By me saying things like this, I can understand that this is causing uh, conflict and this has the potential of a major problem in the body of Christ. But nonetheless, I, I just feel like that this is what the Lord says. I've gone through all of these scriptures. There's a lot more that I have to share. And this is the command of the Lord. And so, if there is conflict, it's because we have established a model that is inconsistent with the Bible. And instead of trying to make the Bible conform to us and change it and water it down, what we ought to do is destroy this model that we have over here and just start making it consistent with the Word of God. And so even if this rubs you the wrong way, the way to solve that problem is repent, amen, and embrace this and accept that God wants us to be disciples. This isn't just for the preacher. This isn't just for me. This isn't just for people that want to come to Bible college. This is for everybody. Every one of us needs to be a disciple. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, He says, If any man come to me and hate not his father 
and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. And Jesus right here is making it very clear. What is a disciple? This isn't literally saying that you have to hate everybody. Uh, the Lord told us we're supposed to love. Matter of fact, this is one of the points I'm going to make later, that to be a disciple, you have to walk in love. This isn't saying that you literally hate everybody, but it's talking about relatively. Compared to your devotion and commitment to God, you have to honor God and your relationship with Him greater than any other relationship, even greater than your love for yourself. Boy, that's a strong statement. And you know, I'm saying these things in love, not to criticize, not to put anybody down, but to try and draw you to a higher level and let you realize what God wants you to do. The Lord didn't call any of you just to get saved and stuck, just to get your foot in the door and hold on until we all get to heaven. What a day that's going to be. No, the Lord called every one of us, yes, to conversion, that we get born again and have a relationship with God. But He's called every one of you into being a disciple with all of the benefits that go with that. The power of God flowing through you. The ability to hear God and walk with God and represent God to other people and see miracles happen in your life and deliverance and awesome things. God wants that for every one of you. But in order for you to reach that level... You have to have a relative hatred for yourself and everything of this world and just put God supremely above everything else. You cannot be a disciple if you aren't willing to make Jesus absolute master and control of everything and put Him above yourself. Boy, that's a strong statement. But you know what? I'm trying to say that this is for every one of you. And I could truthfully say that one of the reasons that many of you are struggling is because you haven't made this total commitment to the Lord. I'm going to make a statement here that is just going to shock some of you. But it's not only the devil who's dealing you misery. Many of you, it's yourself that is causing all of these problems. You are shooting yourself in the foot. You are doing dumb things. And I'm saying that in love. I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but it's because you aren't a disciple, because you are leaning under your own understanding, and you're reaping the results of all of the stuff that you're doing. I mean, I talk to people all of the time that tell me about the, what their problem is. They're sick. They're poor. They've got marriage problems. They've got all of these problems and stuff. And sure enough, the situation they're in is bad. Sure enough, God wants to supply... Uh, a miracle for them and bring them to a new level and do something good in their life. And so I'm in agreement with all of that. But as I begin to start talking to them and find out, all right, so why is this, why are you in this situation? And as I start probing, I found out that, yeah, the devil may be the one that caused this problem. He may be the one that took the shot at him, but they gave him the pistol and loaded it for him. They gave him all of this ammunition, and the devil is just using their own stupid decisions, their own way of doing things against them. I'm not saying that to be mean to anybody, but I'm telling you that it is not in the way of a man to direct his own steps. That's Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. He says, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. And if you took that in context, you know what he's doing? He's 
talking about that the Jewish nation at one time were the people of God. They were favored by God more than any other nation on the face of the earth. They were the apple of his eye. They were treated special. They had all of these benefits. And yet they had now been led into exile. They had been destroyed. Their nation had been conquered. Their women had been raped and terrible things had happened. And Jeremiah was just saying, God, how could this happen to the people that were once the apple of your eye? And he answers his own question by saying, Oh Lord, I know that it is not in man that walks that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. Basically what he's doing, he says, here's the reason it happened, because they leaned unto their own understanding. Instead of following your word, instead of following your guidelines, they chose to do it their way. They chose to follow other gods. They chose not to obey the things that God told them to do. And they literally destroyed themselves. You know, uh, Jonah said it this way, when he was in the belly of the well, I forget the exact verse. It's about Jonah chapter 2, verse 3 or 6, somewhere in there. He says, those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. God has a plan for your life, which is good. It includes healing, deliverance, prosperity, joy, peace, all of these kind of things. God has a plan for you, and He wants to help bring these good things to pass. It says in John chapter 10 that the thief comes for no other purpose except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So Jesus wants you to have this abundant life. But if you observe lying vanities, in other words, if you follow the crowd, if you go by what the devil says, if you lean under your own understanding, you forsake your own mercies. You abandon this good path that God has for you and you start bringing calamity upon yourself. That doesn't mean that God's the one that's punishing you and destroying you. God's not the one that's making your life miserable. But you open up a door to the devil when you do things your own way. You just allow the devil to come in and destroy you. And I see this with people I minister to all of the time. Yes, God wants to provide a miracle for them, but until they forsake the things that they've been doing that just allow the devil to come in and eat their lunch and pop the bag until they change their way of doing things and quit inviting Satan in and following his leadership, they aren't going to experience God's best. And so I say all of this to say that when Jesus is saying that if you don't love me above anything else, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple, Many people recoil at that and think, oh man, I don't want to commit my life to God. I want my freedom. What about me doing things my own way? You and Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And you, there is something that people just, they think that God is going to hurt you or whatever. Well, let me ask how that selfishness and you're doing it your way is working for you. <laughs> man, if you'd be honest, that's the reason you're sick. That's the reason you're poor. That's the reason you're suffering. That's the reason all of these things are happening is because we have done it our way. And I'm telling you, this may look restrictive. The devil will try and tell you that God is wanting to keep you from experiencing real joy and peace. All you'll lose if you love God above anything and everything else. You will lose your sickness, your poverty, your miserableness. You'll lose the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the hurt, and the pain. I guarantee you, serving God and doing it His way is far superior to doing it your way. And that basically is what Jesus is saying. Unless you are willing to forsake yourself and put God ahead of your own thinking, put God ahead of what your parents say, 
what your wife has to say, what your children has to say, what the news broadcast has to say, what your education has to say. Unless you put God's Word and what God is doing as superior in your life, you cannot be a disciple. Those are strong statements, but those are the words of Jesus. He's talking about total commitment. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You can be born again. You could be converted, but you cannot be a disciple. You cannot get to a place to where you are effectively living this abundant life that God wants us to unless you turn on this selfishness and lean in under your own understanding. Boy, those are powerful truths. And again, I could amplify on this. Matter of fact, I do a lot. I've got a whole teaching entitled Self-Centeredness, a Source of All Grief. There's so many other things. I've got a lot of teachings. I'm just making little points here that you need to go and study and get amplified. But this is to help us understand what is a disciple. Here's another thing. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, this is the night before his crucifixion. And he said, I'm among you as your master. And you call me master, and that's correct. But he says, I've not lorded it over you the way that the people in the world do. He says, I've humbled myself. And he actually knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. And he acted among them like a slave, like a servant would do. And he says, you see that I've humbled myself and I'm not here as one lording it over you. I'm serving you. And he says, this is the way that the kingdom operates. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to humble yourself and you've got to serve other people. And he said this in John 13, 35, right after those other statements. He says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. So here again is Jesus clarifying what a disciple is. What is a disciple? A person who is a disciple is a person who loves other people, specifically loves the believers. And you know, again, I can amplify on this for a long, long time, but this doesn't really need much amplification. All you got to do is look around and see Christians, people who claim to be Christians. And I guarantee you, the, this denomination over here criticizes this denomination and this person on the television and radio builds an entire ministry around exposing all of the cults and the false things and calling this group of the devil and all, all of this. And man, the bickering and the strife and the division in the body of Christ is at epidemic proportions. You know why? Because we got converts, but we don't have disciples. If you're truly a disciple... One of the characteristics of a disciple is that you love one another. Now again, this doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you can't ever have a flesh flash and that you can't just get into yourself and lose your temper or do something. Now I'm not recommending that, but I'm saying this isn't saying that you're perfect. But it is saying that you operate in a supernatural ability to love other people. You know, I could give you a million examples of this. But there are so many people that have done things to me or misunderstood me. I remember my in-laws. You know, right before I married Jamie, just a week before we told Jamie's parents that we were going to get married, 
her dad came into Jamie and says, you stay away from that Andrew Womack. I don't want you having anything to do with him. And then the next week we came and told him we were going to get married. So we started on the wrong foot. He didn't like it at all. He argued with me. He tried to manipulate me. And within two years, it just boiled over to where he screamed at me, called me one of these old Pentecostal preachers that has a Bible in one hand and a rod in the other and you're a hypocrite and he screamed and yelled at me. My mother-in-law just cried. Jamie cried. And when we left, I asked, I said, BF, can I come back? And uh, he thought about it. He, it wasn't a quick answer. And he says, well, we want our daughter to come back. So I guess we'll let you come back. And that's the way that we started. And I mean... He was mad at me, and and I could give you a lot of things about this. But anyway, B.F. and Mary Jane, my in-laws, became some of our very best friends and some of our biggest supporters of the ministries. And B.F. was a very proud man. He never told me this, but my nephew, who lived with uh, B.F. for a period of time, he told me one time they were sitting down talking, and B.F. was talking about some of these things that happened and how that it started off so bad. And B.F. just said, but you know, Andrew and Jamie just kept loving us. And says that one, that love won us over. Now, B.F. never told me that, but I mean, he expressed it in the way that we became good friends and we did things together and, and we got very close. And you know what? I can truthfully say that in the natural, if somebody would have done the things to me that my daddy-in-law did, if it hadn't have been for Jesus, I would have cut them off. I would have retaliated. I would have said something back. But you know what? Because of the love of Jesus, because He had done a work in my life, and because I was in the process of becoming a disciple, I can truthfully say that I love B.F. and Mary Jane, and I never did get mad at them. And I just kept walking in love towards them, and it won them over. And I believe that that, according to what Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. I tell you, church fights... And the division and the arguments over things are an indication that we've got a lot of converts but not disciples. If you're truly a disciple, did you know there's some things more important than the color of the carpet? There's some things more important of whether you get chairs or whether they're pews, whether they sing the new songs or the old songs. And yet people fight over this. There are church divisions, church splits. And all of these kind of things. There are some things that are worth fighting for. There's other things that it's just a bunch of carnality and the reason it's happening is because they aren't true disciples. They're converts, but they don't have the love of God flowing in them. You know what? You can't give away what you don't have. And if you haven't been discipled and understood how tremendous it is what God has forgiven you, then you won't be able to turn around and forgive the person that has a little speck in their eye and you've got this huge beam coming out of your own. You won't be able to do that unless you've been a disciple. It doesn't just come naturally. It is not human nature to turn the other cheek. You have to be taught those things. You have to have the Holy Spirit come and confirm it to you. You have to grow and experience it. And I tell you, this is a, design, a sign of a disciple. So the first thing we talked about is you have to be willing to make a total commitment, have a relative hatred for every other relationship and even your own life compared to God. Second thing is you have to love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. The same author, John, the Apostle John, wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 
You know, when it says here that you don't know God, I'm not, I'm not certain about this, but I, I don't think this is saying that you can't be born again if you aren't walking in love with other people. But I do believe it is saying this, that you don't know God in an intimate way. You don't really have a great relationship with God if you can't turn the other cheek and walk in love. Or another way of saying it is, you aren't a true disciple if you're a person that still has all of these hot buttons and all somebody's got to do is just push your button and boy, you flare and you do this, you aren't a disciple. You might be a convert, but you aren't a disciple because a disciple is a person that loves, that has the love of God working in them. Again, some people think I may be saying this to discourage you or condemn you. That's not my motivation at all. I'm just trying to say that, you know, we've got a deficit in this area. And how do I get that point across? I'm just taking the very words of Jesus. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It goes on to say in John chapter 15, this is Jesus speaking again. He said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So we can say a third thing right here. The first thing was you have to have a commitment, a relative commitment to God above any other relationship, even your own life. You have to love other people. And the third thing here is he says that this will make you a disciple if you bear much fruit. In other words, a person who claims to be a disciple and yet there isn't any fruit, there isn't any evidence, you're sick, you're poor, you're angry, you're bitter, you're still held by lust. You can't break free from pornography. You can't experience any of these things. There isn't any fruit in your life. It's possible that you're born again, but you are not a disciple until you begin to start bearing fruit, until you start experiencing some of this victory of what Jesus provided for you. Again, I don't say any of these things to condemn a person, but rather to take away this deception and this idea that just being saved, getting inside the front door is sufficient. I'm saved. Now I'm just going to stay stuck until the time that I die and go to be with the Lord. And then in heaven, what a great day that's going to be. That's not what God intended. He wants you to begin to start experiencing and bearing fruit Right now, that is one of the things that makes you a disciple is if you can bear fruit. There's a lot that could be said about that. The fourth thing here that is a characteristic of a disciple, it says that uh, you must be able to endure hardship or persecution. Second Timothy chapter 2 says in verses 3 and 4, Now therefore, and this is talking about in verse 2, it says, Take the things that you've heard of me and commit them to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. This is talking about discipleship process. And then in verse 3, it starts describing some of the characteristics of faithful men and women or people who are disciples. It says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So when it's talking about what is a faithful person, what is a disciple, a person that you could commit things to and trust them to teach others, they are people that can endure hardness as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 24, Jesus said, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? He's talking about this is for those who are disciples. If you're going to truly be a disciple, you are going to suffer persecution. 
Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Yea, all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And you know what? I can name lots of people, lots of people who claim to be Christians who may be born again. They may be a true convert, but boy, they aren't about to suffer persecution. Most people wouldn't even suffer the little bit of rejection if you go up and say, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. They wouldn't even suffer the, you know, just the, the glance that somebody gives them, just the little bit of rejection. They can't even handle that, much less being beaten for their faith. There are people today who are suffering, I mean, real persecution. And if you are a truly disciple, Jesus here said the disciple is not going to be above his master. If they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you. You have to endure hardness, criticism, persecution. And a person who's not willing to do that, you may be a convert, but you aren't a disciple. A characteristic of a disciple is that they are committed to God, even if it begins to start costing them something. And if you were to just to apply these four things that we've already talked about to most people who claim the name of Christianity and say, are you willing to put God ahead of yourself above every other relationship, follow God at all cost? Are, do you truly love your brother and sister? Are you bearing fruit? Are you willing to suffer persecution and hardship for the sake of the Lord? And if you were to start putting those criteria down and if people would ask, answer your questions honestly... You could whittle the number of people that claim, quote, unquote, to be Christians down to just a very small percentage are by definition a disciple. And then here is a fifth thing. And uh, I tell you what, this just overwhelms me. This is amazing. This is something that, you know, again, it's hard for me to say some of these things because I am so counterculture not just talking about the secular culture. I'm so counter to the religious culture of our day that I know that this is going to cause no small stir. And in a way, you know, it would be nice to avoid it, but I wouldn't really be a disciple if I wasn't willing to put God and what He says above any what anybody else says, if I wasn't able to endure hardship and criticism over it. I'm going to read to you things that Jesus said that is going to be so counter our religious culture that this is probably going to cause a lot of people to be upset. But you know what? I'm reading you the words of Jesus. Look at this. In John chapter 8, Jesus had been attacked by the scribes and Pharisees again. He was defending himself and, and showing that his authority came from God. And it says in John 8 verse 30, As he spake these words, many believed on him. Boy, now that's important. He was under attack by all these religious leaders, but as he gave his defense, many of the people there believed on him. And look at this in verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now this is important. I'm going to read a lot of scriptures here, and it's important that you remember that everything he was saying here, he said to those who believed on him. Verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if... You continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now in verse 31, he says, then are you my disciples indeed. That means in truth. 
by him even having to say, you are a disciple indeed, is making it very clear that there are some people who were a disciple in name, but it wasn't in truth. It wasn't reality. There are lots of people who claim to be true followers and claim all of these things. But, you know, there's an old song I used to sing that says, What you are speaks so loud that the world can't hear what you say. They're not listening to your talk. They're looking at your walk. They're judging by your actions every day. Don't believe you'll deceive by pretending what you've never known. They'll judge by what they see and know you to be. They'll judge by your life alone. Basically, Jesus is saying that, you know what, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciple in truth. You could claim to be a disciple, but you aren't a disciple unless it's evidenced in your life. And look at this in verse 31. He says, if you continue in my word. So then are you my disciples indeed. So you can say, here's another characteristic of a disciple. It is a person who continues in the word or continues in their relationship with God. I remember Catherine Kuhlman. Some of you may not even know who she was, but back in the 80s, maybe even before that, I guess, maybe in the 60s and 70s, Catherine Kuhlman uh, was drawing bigger crowds than anybody. And I had the privilege of ushering in some of her meetings. And I remember being at one meeting in Dallas, and there was probably five or 10,000 people, at least 5,000 people there. And, I mean, she just saw awesome miracles. I was an usher and literally had to pick people up off of stretchers and out of wheelchairs and get them out of the aisles. And, I mean, I, I remember this one woman. I could put my hand around her thigh. It was down to just a bone. She was just skin and bone. She was virtually dead. Couldn't move, couldn't sit up, couldn't lift her hand. She looked like she was dead. I picked this woman up. I know what she was like. And then I went down and sat on the front row and I wanted to watch. And this woman that I had picked up off this stretcher came running down the aisle, pushing her stretcher and jumping up and down on the stage and totally healed. I tell you what, it impressed me. I was impressed. But anyway, my point in bringing this up was Catherine Kuhlman got up, and this was at a full gospel businessmen's meeting. And people were talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, which I believe in and support 100%. But she got up, and she said, Some of you, how many of you in here have been baptized in the Holy Spirit for five years? And a lot of people stood up. How many 10 years? How many 15 years? How many 20 years? And man, people were just shouting and praising God. And then she looked over. There was like a group of 50 or 60 preachers sitting on the platform. And she says, I know all of you. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit for 20 years. And she says, you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit 20 years ago and you haven't been full of the Holy Ghost a day since. (laughs) And then she just lit into them about how that it's not just a one-time experience. You have to stay full. You have to continue This is exactly what Jesus was saying. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You have to continue with the Lord. You have to continue following Him. And if you aren't continuing, then you aren't a disciple. And notice in verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We often take that verse out of context. And we'll even take just one phrase of that verse and says the truth shall make you free. That's not a true statement. The truth doesn't make anybody free just by itself. 
You could take the Bible and hold it under your arm, lay it on top of your head, sleep with it, put it on your chest when you go to bed. The truth isn't going to set you free. It says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The truth that you know sets you free. What you don't know isn't setting you free. There are some of you that are sick today and you know God can heal, but you aren't experiencing healing because you don't know the truth. You don't understand that God doesn't have to do anything to heal you. He's already done it. He's already released the power. It's not about God healing you. It's about you learning how to receive what has already been given. Most people, see, don't have that knowledge. Most people think, I've got to pray, I've got to fast, I've got to do something to get God to heal me. No, God's already healed you. Now you've got to renew your mind and learn how to receive. It's all about you receiving, not about God giving. And so it's not true to say that the truth will make you free. It's only the truth you know that makes you free. Have you ever seen one of these bumper stickers that says, Ignorance is bliss? Well, that's not the truth. Ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is killing you. The Bible says my people perish for a lack of knowledge. What you don't know is killing you. And we have multitudes of converts that aren't disciples. And they're poor. They're discouraged. They're angry. They're bitter. They're full of hurt and pain, unforgiveness, and on and on you could go with all of these things. It's not only hurting them, which grieves the Lord because He's provided all of these good things for you, but it's also hurting the body of Christ. Man, Christians are licking their own wounds. They're struggling and barely keeping their head above water, and therefore they aren't much of a blessing to anybody else. If they go out and knock on a door, they're sitting there crying. They, they look like they've been sucking on persimmons and they say, don't you want what I've got? The average non-Christian will say, no, I don't want what you've got. I've got enough problems. Man, leave me alone. You know, you need to start experiencing the blessing of God. You need to start living in victory. And then, man, people will come to you and say, man, I want what you've got. You aren't bothered by things the way that other people are. We've got to start experiencing this. And the only way you're going to be set free is if you continue in the Word until it becomes revelation to you and you experience it on a heart level and know the truth in your heart. Then you will be made free. This is another characteristic of a disciple. Is It's a person who continues in the Word. If you had an experience 10 years ago, but if it's not current now, if it isn't blessing you now, you may be a convert, but you aren't a disciple. If you haven't continued in the Word until there is revelation and God is speaking to you, and I mean there is something more than just an intellectual understanding, there is a heart knowing that has produced freedom in you. You are free from your unforgiveness and pain. You aren't a disciple. You know, I meet so many quote-unquote Christians, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not the judge, and so I can't say that they aren't truly born again, but I can say they aren't a disciple. But I have so many quote-unquote Christians come to me that are still struggling because they were sexually abused when they were a child, because they were verbally abused when they were a child, because this happened. And here they are 20 and 30 and 40 years later still limping through life with all of these pains and unforgiveness in their life and thinking that this is normal. You haven't continued in the Word to where the Word has become revelation and you've been set free. 
And I know that there's people that will take, uh, take exception with what I'm saying. There's people that will get mad. You'll let me have it. You'll write in and say, what right do you have to say? You don't know if you haven't been through this. I know based on this that if you continue in the Word until you know the truth, you will be set free from that. I have had lots of people that have had worse things happen to them than what have happened to you, and they are totally free. It's, it's, it's as if it never happened to them. They are living a victorious life. You can take siblings that came out of the same family with the exact same environment, the same gene pool, and one will be destroyed by the alcoholism in their family, and the other one will go the other direction and be a total teetotaler and never have a problem with it. You can't tell me that it's just, you can't help it. If you continue in the Word, there will come a revelation and the Holy Spirit will set you free. And that is being a disciple. If you're still bound with all of these things that have happened to you 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago and you are a Christian but you're just hoping that God comes soon and gets you out of here, you're thinking of committing suicide because you just can't handle it, you could be a convert but you aren't a disciple. A disciple is a person who continues in the Word until they know the truth. And then that truth that they know makes them free. He was speaking to people who believed on Him and saying, if you'll continue in my Word, then you'll be my disciple and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. In other words, you can be a believer and still be bound. You know, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he was completely bound with grave clothes, and God, the Lord said, loose him and let him go. He was raised from the dead, but what good would it have done if he had been still wrapped in his grave clothes? He had to be loosed after he was resurrected from the dead. He was alive, but he was bound. Likewise, there are people who get born again, and they truly have experienced the Lord, but they still have all their grave clothes. They still have all of the hurts and pains. The... Um, prejudices, the hurts, the, uh, the criticisms, all of the unforgiveness that they had before they got born again, they are bound and they have to be loosed and let go. That's what discipleship is. It's teaching a person how to begin to start experiencing the freedom and the liberty wherewith Christ has made them free. Well, that's a great example. So Jesus told him, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Remember in verse 31, this was spoken to those who believed on him. He was telling believers that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And here's their response. In verse 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? They took offense. They basically said, what are you saying? We shall be made free. We're free now. There's nothing wrong with us. We've never been in bondage to any man. You know, before I make the application to us, let me just say that this was totally wrong. The Jews at this time were, were conquered by the Romans. They were being oppressed by the Romans. If any of you have ever seen the movie Ben-Hur, or you've seen any of those things, you know that the Jews were just, I mean, being mistreated and there was terrible hatred and there was oppression and they were not free by anybody's evaluation. And yet these people said, we're Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. They were in bondage and didn't know it. Likewise, today when I start saying that if you are going to be a disciple, it's a person who has continued in the Word until they experience revelation of it. They know it and then they start experiencing freedom. When I say that, there are going to be people 
who will criticize me and say, hey, I'm not in bondage to anything. I'm born again. I'm not a disciple, but I'm free. There's no problem in my life. And yet you can't overcome pornography. You can't overcome the gossip and the criticism in your life. You can't overcome depression. You can't overcome sickness. You can't overcome poverty. When a recession hits, you fall like a $2 suitcase, just like all of the people who aren't Christians. You go through the same hurts and pains. When we have September the 11th and the terrorist attacks come, you wouldn't fly in a plane. You panicked. You, uh, your hearts begin to fail you the same as people that didn't know the Lord, and yet you'd sit there and maintain, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm free. That is not freedom. I guarantee you, if you haven't continued in the Word until you become a true disciple and experience revelation, then you are not free. So Jesus responded to them by saying, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. So basically, he didn't even get into the political realm and the fact that the Romans were oppressing the Jews. He just says, you know what, if you are... If you can't overcome sin, then you are the servant of sin. You aren't free. You are a slave to sin. In verse 35, And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. This goes right back to verse 31 where he says, If you continue in the word, then are you my disciples indeed. There are people who are disciples in name, but not in practice. It's not reality. There are people who are claiming that they're free, but they aren't free indeed. He said, if you shall um, continue in the word, you shall be free. The son shall make you free. You shall be free indeed. Verse 37, he says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Remember, he's talking to people in verse 31 who believed on him, not the unbelievers, not the people who were sitting there saying, you're a Beelzebub. These were the people who embraced him and embraced his proclamation that he was the Son of God. And he said unto them, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. Boy, this really offended them. In verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You know, this isn't explained right here, but later in Scripture, it says those who are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. He said in Romans chapter 2 that a Jew is not a Jew just in the flesh, not just somebody who's circumcised, not somebody who is a Jew by genealogy, by descent, but a true Jew is a is a Jew in their heart. Abraham was a person of faith. And even though his physical descendants claimed that they were his children, he says, you aren't Abraham, you aren't Abraham's seed because you aren't in faith. You aren't trusting God the way that Abraham did. And so he said, uh, but now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them... Now, notice again, he's speaking to those who believed on him. And he's speaking to people who believed in one God. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If, you're, if, you were, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. <laughs> Boy, 
That is, that is just one awesome passage of Scripture. Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Again, go back to verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. He wasn't saying this to the scribes and the Pharisees. He wasn't saying this to the chief priest. He wasn't saying this to the Judaizers. He was saying this to the Jews who had believed on him and accepted his message. And he was telling them they needed to continue in the word. They needed to go deeper to be set free. They took offense and he just kept talking and finally he just said, you are of your father the devil. People who believed on him. You know, I, all I've done is read scripture right here. And I know some of you right now are, what are you saying? I'm reading scripture is what I'm saying. What is the Bible saying? And some people say, oh, well, are you saying then that you aren't truly born again until you become a disciple, until you, until you get continuing the word, until you're free, until you're all of these things? Are you saying that a person who just simply calls on the Lord and asks for salvation, but they aren't a disciple, they aren't free, they're still bound? Are you saying that they are of their father, the devil, and they aren't truly born again? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. I don't know exactly what this is saying. I'm saying that this rattles my theology. But you know what? I, that's one of the benefits of me not having gone through cemetery, I mean seminary, and making a list of things I believe over here and then go to the Bible and try and justify all of these things. I don't have a list of things that I believe. I believe the Bible. And everything I believe is based on the Bible as much as I understand, as much as I can tell. And if the Bible says this, then I'm willing to throw away whatever tradition has to say. I believe, this is just a, this is a first response for me. I don't claim that I have full revelation on this yet. But I believe that because we haven't preached discipleship and we haven't told people the whole truth, again, they can only believe what they hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And since all we've preached is just, receive Jesus as your Savior so you won't go to hell, but instead you'll go to heaven. I believe that that's what people have faith for. And I believe that there are people who are converts and are truly born again and are going to heaven, but they, they aren't disciples. And I believe that that condition exists, but I don't believe that that's the way God wanted it to exist. And I believe it's possible that maybe these people never were true believers. Maybe they just had mental assent. For instance, over in James chapter 2, it says, Faith without works is dead. You believe that there is one God? You do well. The devils also believe in trouble. But won't thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? This is saying that just believing something intellectually isn't true Bible faith. Romans 10.10 10 says, With the heart man believes, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It has to be a heart belief, not just a mental assent. It's possible that these people only acknowledged Jesus, but they didn't really believe with all of their heart. They hadn't truly committed their life to the Lord, and maybe they never were born again, and so he said, You were of your father the devil. It's possible that they were born again, not in this sense that you couldn't be born again until after Jesus' resurrection. 
in, in Acts chapter, uh, or after the resurrection of Jesus is when people started being born again. But they could have been saved in the sense Old Testament people were saved. And maybe when he said you were of your father the devil, he wasn't talking about their nature, that they were children of the devil, but maybe they were still being dominated by their old nature and by their carnal things in their life. Like Lazarus, maybe they were still bound with their grave clothes. Maybe that's what he meant. You know, I'm not totally sure what this means, but let me point this out. And I believe this with all of my heart. It's not good when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. I don't know exactly all that that means, but I know it's not good. I don't want him to say of me that I am of my father, the devil. If that's talking about that I don't truly know him, or if it's talking about that I'm still bound by all of these demonic things that were in my life prior, I don't know what it means, but it's not good. I know that with all of my heart. And I'm saying that he said this to people who believed on him. To put this into our terminology today, he was saying this to people who go to church. He was saying this to people who embraced the disciplines of Christianity. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. They believe in all of these things. They would have been accepted as church members in any church today. These people would have passed as Christians by our standards today. And yet to these religious Christians, Jesus said, you need to continue. You need to go on until you get set free. They took offense. And finally, he says, you are of your father, the devil. I don't know exactly what that means, but that's not good. This is offensive to a lot of people. A lot of people are saying, man, what are you saying? I'm saying all of these things for your own benefit. I'm trying to say that God doesn't want you to stop at just believing on Him. He wants you to go on to be a disciple. He wants you to continue in the Word until you get set free. Only a free man can set another person free. And there are some of you that the reason you're so ineffective as a witness for the Lord is because you're bound yourself. You can't go out and set somebody else free until you've experienced freedom. I'm saying this because I love you, because I'm concerned about you. You know, it would be easier for me not to say these things because I'll get criticism. There's people that will, because this rubs your doctrine the wrong way, you had everything in nice, neat little order and you had it organized on the shelf and you had all of your things and this just doesn't fit. It's easier to just come out and criticize me and say that guy's a heretic or whatever and you won't deal with it. His I'll get criticism over this. It would be easier for me to do something else. But I tell you, I believe that this is important. I've basically read the words of Jesus to you with very little commentary. And Jesus said to people who believed on him, you are of your father the devil. And I tell you, if I was a person that I had been taught that all you got to do is just believe, and it doesn't matter if you go on and follow him, it doesn't matter if you seek his direction, it doesn't matter, you know, you can go ahead and and in your politics just vote as ungodly as you want to, do whatever is going to advantage you, forget whether it's moral, immoral. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. But let's just forget that. You've been this political party, you've voted this way your whole life, just, just keep doing it. There's people, see, that that's the way that they want to live. They want to acknowledge Jesus and say, oh, I'm a believer, but then it's not, they aren't going to have it affect any of their relationships. They aren't going to have it affect their voting. They aren't going to have it 
affect where they go. They aren't going to have it affect their behavior. Man, that's bondage. You're putting bondage on me. And there's people that will be offended at this. But I'm saying these things because I love you and I'm wanting to bring you on. I don't want the Lord to say to you that I never knew you. I don't want Him to say to you that you were of your father, the devil. And you know what? I don't know where you stand with the Lord, but I, I know this, that if you would continue in the Word, not just have made a decision five years ago and, and get uh, insurance policy, and then therefore you never worry about it again, and you don't ever seek the Lord, and you just wait until you die and go to heaven, because that's when salvation starts. Instead, if you would start experiencing the Lord now, if you would go on to have a vibrant relationship with the Lord now, and continue in His Word until the Word comes alive. You know it and you get set free. I can guarantee you, if you were a true disciple, the Lord would never say to you, you are of your father, the devil. He'll never say that. That doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect and it doesn't mean you'll never have a problem. But man, when Peter even renounced the Lord and he got embarrassed and he, he says, I never knew Him. The Lord said, I've already prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. And when you're converted... Strengthen your brethren. And the Lord already made provision for him. And the Lord loved him because he knew his heart. Even though he failed big time, in his heart he was committed to God. He was willing to die for the Lord. He actually took out a sword and tried to cut off a guy's head. And the Lord had him put his sword back. Peter wanted to do the right thing. He was weak in the flesh. He didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he failed miserably, as did all of the disciples. The Lord treated them differently than this. The Lord is, is a God of grace and compassion. But I guarantee you, He wants you to go on and to follow Him until you get set free. And it's not going to happen effortlessly. It is not automatic that you are just going to be the person that God wants you to be and be a disciple. There's some effort on your part. The effort is to get into the Word of God. Continue in the Word until you know the truth. And then, if you just focus on the Word, well, then the change comes effortlessly. The only effort is to just discipline yourself, to go on and to learn and to follow and do what God is telling you to do. And then change can come effortlessly as a byproduct of that. But it's going to take some effort on your part to get into the Word of God. You can't be a disciple spending 10 minutes a day, an hour a week going to church. That's not discipleship. This is an all-consuming thing that you need to seek the Lord with all of your heart until you get conformed to His image. 